On December 16th, the USPTO issued guidance on subject matter eligibility of claims under Section 101 in view of the Supreme Court's decisions in Alice, Myriad, and Mayo. Finnegan attorneys Linda Thayer and Leslie McDonald join us now to explain these guidelines and discuss the potential impact they'll have on patent claims. Now, the IP community has been waiting many months for final guidance around patent eligibility involving abstract ideas in the wake of the Supreme Court's decisions in Alice, Myriad, and Mayo. The new guidance is intended to supplement the guidance issued earlier in view of Alice. Linda, perhaps you can start us off here. Can you describe what was added or clarified in the guidance related to the Alice decision? Sure. First, we must remember that the preliminary guidance issued from the PTO on June 25th, which was I think only about a week after the Supreme Court issued its decision in Alice. So the PTO's guidance in those preliminary instructions was quite basic, and we didn't really know a whole lot. So the preliminary guidelines basically just state that the Mayo framework should be used to analyze all of the claims that fall within a statutory category, but which are directed to one of the so-called judicial exceptions, whether it be laws of nature, natural phenomena, or abstract ideas. And what was new in the preliminary guidelines was that Mayo applied to computer-implemented abstract ideas. The preliminary guidance also noted that Alice established that the same analysis should be used for all categories of claims, whether they be product or process claims. But without much more to go on, the preliminary instructions largely just parroted the language of the Alice and Mayo decisions. So, What's new with the interim guidelines is that we have more data, we have more information, there's been some additional Federal Circuit cases since June. But in addition, one of the things that is new in the interim guidelines is that they clearly state that for the purposes of efficiency in examination, that examiners should examine every claim for all of the patentability requirements. That is, whether there's anticipation under Section 102, obviousness under Section 103, but also for 112 and double patenting issues. So this, I think, is a positive development. Some of the examiners that I was working with were rejecting solely on 101 grounds without addressing the others in the same office action, and this was adding an extra layer of prosecution. I know from some of the work with the groups that I do that this change was one of the suggestions made during the comment period, and I'm happy to see that one was adopted. Beyond that, the new guidelines also have a helpful but not particularly surprising summary of those five Federal Circuit decisions involving abstract ideas and computer-implemented inventions that did issue, and that's very interesting. And Linda, was there anything in the guidance relating to computer-implemented inventions that was surprising? Well, somewhat interesting is that the interim guidelines contain summaries also of five Federal Circuit decisions that issued before the Alice decision. The Surf Technology Decision, RCT, Dealer Track, Smart Gene, and Cyberphone. So in Dealer Track, Smart Gene, and Cyberphone, the Federal Circuit found all the claims ineligible. But in the other two, um, Surf, SIRF, and RCT, the Federal Circuit found claims patent eligible. Now, both of these decisions issued in 2010, which was after the Mayo decision, but yet neither decision applies the Mayo analysis in reaching their conclusion. So in the SURF decision, the Federal Circuit actually applied the machine or transformation test in finding that the method claims there, I think they were to calculating the absolute position of a GPS receiver. The court found those claims 
patent eligible using the machine or transformation test. Now, in Mayo, the Supreme Court emphasized that using the machine or transformation test alone was not enough, and it came up with its two-part test, which, as we know, has now been adopted by the Supreme Court in Alice. But in SURF, the court did not apply the Mayo test, even though that decision issued one month after Mayo was decided. In the other one, in RCT, the court applying Bilski found nothing abstract about the claims, and so they therefore recited uh, patentable subject matter. Now, although this case issued in December 2010, the court reached this decision effectively by applying the Part 1 test of Mayo, but the decision does not cite to Mayo. So I find the inclusion of these two cases, or actually all five of these that issued before Alice, interesting and potentially confusing. It may be that the PTO included these cases only because it agrees with the outcomes, despite how the Federal Circuit got there. But I think practitioners should use caution when relying to or citing on these cases. Leslie, the USPTO also described this guidance as intending to supersede the Myriad and Mayo guidance issued earlier this year. What key provisions were revised in the guidance issued this week as it related to subject matter eligibility analysis in claims involving laws of nature or natural products? I believe there are two major changes in the new interim guidelines. The first is that overall the newly issued interim guidelines are far simpler, far more user-friendly than the guidelines issued in March of 2014. Gone is the complicated 12-factor analysis that had to be applied to any claim that contained any element that related in any way to a natural product or natural phenomenon. The new interim guidelines now state that a claim must be directed to a natural product or natural phenomenon before it's subject to 101 scrutiny. A second major change is in the way the office intends to evaluate market difference between the claim subject matter and the product or phenomenon as it exists in nature. Under the superseded guidelines, to be patent eligible, the claimed subject matter had to be structurally distinct from the most closely related product in nature. The new interim guidelines now state that structure, function, and or other characteristics may be relied upon to establish a distinction from its naturally occurring counterpart in its natural state. In addition, the office will now truly consider the claim as a whole, and if a combination of nature-based products doesn't occur in nature in that combination, it's the structure, function, characteristics of the combination of a whole that's going to be compared to the individual components as they exist in nature. This change results in, for example, gunpowder, a combination of three naturally occurring ingredients, being patent eligible under the new interim guidelines when it wasn't patent eligible under the March 2014 guidelines. And Leslie, was there anything in the guidance relating to nature-based inventions that you found surprising? I guess I'm surprised that the Patent Office has really softened its views on preemption, and particularly with method claims involving a natural product. Under the prior guidelines and in practice at the office since those guidelines issued, the PTO appeared to be defining preemption almost identically with the scope of the claim. For example, if the claim was to a new way of using a known nature-based drug, such as a method of treating a colon cancer with a compound that had been previously used to treat breast cancer, the PTO defined preemption as that new use, that is, treating colon cancer, rather than defining preemption by the judicial exception at issue, which was the nature-based drug. 
the office then required that the claim be limited by dosage ranges and treatment regimens so as to not preempt all uses of the compound to treat colon cancer, which should not have been the focus of the preemption analysis to begin with. Under the new interim guidelines, preemption appears to be applied in a much more limited way to all types of claims, and is no longer applied at all to the method of treatment claims, which the interim guidelines describe as directed to a process of practically applying the product and not the product itself. The interim guidelines go as far as to say that these claims need not even be subjected to a markedly different analysis. And more importantly, the PTO appears to be trying to focus the preemption inquiry directly on the judicial exception and not the application of the exception defined by the claims. The USPTO characterizes these guidelines as interim eligibility guidance and expects that the guidance will be updated again in view of developments in the case law and in response to public feedback. Linda, is there anything that strikes you as needing additional clarity based on your review of the guidance that was just released? Well, I think the guidelines are pretty clear in their explanation of how the Mayo test should be applied to computer-implemented inventions, and I also think the summaries of the post-ALICE Federal Circuit cases are helpful. But as I mentioned earlier, I would like some clarification as to what weight the PTO plans to give the five Federal Circuit cases that issued before ALICE. You know, why are they in there? What's their relevance? If only for the outcome, then just say that. I guess it doesn't surprise me that the PTO considers the guidelines to be subject to change, at least with respect to the nature-based products and natural phenomenon. In fact, the need for flexibility was really driven home the day after the new interim guidelines were published when the Federal Circuit issued its decision in the University of Utah v. Ambry Genetics case involving Myriad's patents. This Federal Circuit decision may already call into question the new PTO position on claims to combinations of natural products by deciding that claims to a pair of primers are patent ineligible because the individual elements are not distinct from those of nature and didn't, in fact, bring a new function to the primer pair. Our guests have been Linda Thayer and Leslie McDonald, partners at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.